You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you haven't heard yet, uh, this is me telling you, you need to take a look at the new boots from Lacrosse, and they fall under the Navigator series. Now, what they've done is they've taken the best parts of a rubber boot and the best parts of your traditional hiking and hunting boot, and they've mashed them together to come up with this new line of boots from lacrosse and that is the navigator series now they have the women's windrows they have the men's windrows and then they have the atlas the atlas series within that as well so go to lacrossefootwear.com and check out this new line of boots that they have i've been using mine for a couple weeks now and i am very impressed with the the fit and the feel and i can't wait to get them in the woods this hunting season and uh, give them a trial run so lacrossefootwear.com check them out Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. All right, in this episode, I am coming at you guys from the passenger seat of my truck. I just woke up to a sunrise in Colorado. Um, my shift for sleeping has just, you know, ended, so we only got maybe an hour left until we're actually at our place to, to actually start going up into the mountains and, and looking for elk, so that's pretty exciting. What I wanted to talk about today is to kind of recap the North Dakota hunt and especially looking back at my last podcast where I talked about kind of what our plans were and then just go over kind of what was different from what we were expecting, what was the same, and then what we would do differently uh, basically for if we were to do that same trip next year, which most likely we probably will. So to recap, you know, real quickly in general, uh, Shane Simpson and I from Calling All Turkeys and the Cali Chronicles went out there to North Dakota and by day two Shane had killed a buck and by day three I had killed my buck and we each have videos on our respective YouTube channels for Shane that would be Shane Simpson on YouTube and then for me it's of course a DIY sportsman and you can find videos for those hunts and in those videos we kind of outline you know basically a live view of what was going on each of those days and basically you're going to find a lot of the information that's important about the hunt specifics on those videos so I'm going to try and not go into too much detail about stuff that's already covered in the videos. I want to try in this podcast to uh, talk more about some of the stuff that we didn't go into as much detail in the actual videos themselves. So 
of course, with any kind of trip like that, there's going to be differences in what your expectations are versus, you know, what the reality is. And if we remember back to what our plan was, it was to try and find a lot of deer in fields that first night before the season started and be able to glass up some good areas. And then from that, or kind of number one, see if there's any good bucks around or if we're just seeing kind of small deer, manage our expectations. And then number two, use that intel to try and figure out where to hunt. And the issue that we had was that entire first evening that we drove around, I think we saw maybe a total of like 10 deer total. So it wasn't, it wasn't hot and heavy by any means. Uh, we were both expecting to see significantly more deer driving around. There's a lot of fields out there, a lot of agriculture. And, you know, we were expecting that, you know, every couple miles we'd be finding another field that had, you know, at least somewhat of, you know, good deer numbers in it, at least like one or two, right? And, and there's just long stretches of 10, 15, 20 miles where we just would never see a deer. And that was really surprising. So I think there's kind of a couple things that were a cause of that. I think the main thing that was a cause of that was the fact that a lot of those deer are probably starting to feed on acorns. That area had a lot of bur oaks where there was, was woods and those bur oaks were starting to drop. Um, the one in our campsite right next to our tent was dropping acorns on us pretty much all night long. Uh, it had turkeys and deer coming through throughout the night. So. I think that was definitely part of it, why we didn't see as many deer in the fields. So that kind of told us, you know, two things. Number one, it made us, it made it really hard for us to figure out how we were going to respond to those initial criteria because, of course, with only seeing so few deer, it was tough to be able to tell, you know, number one, what kind of the, the buck size that we might want to look at is, and it was tough to tell where to hunt. Luckily, the one field that we did find deer on that was public we saw you know a fairly nice eight pointer that ended up being the deer that Shane killed so literally that was the only deer that we saw on public land that was a buck that entire evening of driving around the first day so what could we have done differently I honestly don't know for that aspect of it um, because it's not like we could have done much more driving unless we spent another day on the front end of the trip doing some more glassing and would that have been helpful? It's tough to say. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it would have just been another day of the same where we just don't really see that much. And maybe that second day would have been better spending boots on the ground and looking for actual you know, hot deer sign because that was when we started to really piece things together. Once we got out into the woods, trying to figure out, okay, the deer sign is heavy here, the deer sign's not heavy here. That ended up being a lot more critical to us than actually just you know, trying to scan the fields and, and do some glassing. Now, another thing that we were looking to find and try and figure out that first day of driving around was how many of these private land areas have posted signs on them. In North Dakota, if a land is not posted, it's basically, it can be treated like public land for the purposes of hunting. Whereas if it's posted, you can't go on there at all to hunt. You can go on there without a weapon to retrieve a wounded animal, but that's about it. So I had marked previously a whole bunch of spots where there was landlocked chunks of public land, and there was basically access points that you could take, you know, from the road basically to the private or to the public land through the private, assuming it's not posted. 
and I'd probably marked at least a dozen, 15 of these type of lane lock public spots that obviously would be harder to get to, uh, which made them appealing. And what I ended up finding was almost all of those landlocked public pieces were surrounded by private that was posted. So immediately, a whole bunch of these spots that I had marked on my maps, it was just checking them off one right after another um, in terms of them being no longer assess accessible because of the posted uh, public land or posted private land basically surrounding them. So in a sense, that was you know kind of disappointing, but looking at it from the other hand, it did allow us to cross off a lot of areas, which then made it easier for us to, you know, actually key in on the spots that we ended up hunting. Now, with boots on the ground, the key thing was, at least for us, the acorns, and then also just kind of a knowledge of how the deer want to use uh, the topography. Uh, when I went that next morning, basically, and just did a whole bunch of walking around, when I walked the field edges and things like that, there really wasn't much for deer sign. And a lot of that ground was kind of grassy, it was kind of dry. It was really hard to be able to tell if there were fresh tracks. Sometimes you could see like a, an old pile of droppings or something like that, but it wasn't, it wasn't fresh looking and it was really hard to tell, you know, if the deer sign was there or if it was just kind of cattle sign from some of those areas that, you know, they're fenced in and allowed to graze in. Uh, just because you couldn't really make out tracks all that well. So what we ended up doing is just diving a little bit deeper into the actual woodwork itself. And that's when we started finding deer sign. Uh, one area in particular, you know, if I hadn't dove into the woods themselves, I would have just done a quick loop around the field and then said, this is worthless, got back out. Uh, but then when I dove in deeper, it was, I think, over the course of the morning, I found maybe three or four deer beds um, a bunch of old rubs, a couple old scrapes, really great pinch points, crossings, you know, over little creek beds where there's steep banks and deer are only crossing in one spot. So I ended up scouting those, you know, type of places and finding some really good stuff. And if that would have been the best stuff that I found, I probably would have had at least somewhat of confidence hunting it, knowing that I was able to find, you know, at least deer that I was, you know, kicking around and and uh, finding that fresh sign. But then the areas that we tried to really focus in on more on this early season type of hunt were the smaller pockets of uh, public land, simply from the standpoint that they were maybe a little bit easier to figure out than some of those real big tracks. The big tracks, there was definitely deer there, but it also seemed like it was gonna be easier in those types of areas to basically hunt them during the rut. So I was basically marking waypoints and saying, okay, I'll come back to this if I need to, but if not, I have a good bunch of good rut waypoints marked um, that if I come back later in the year, if I don't tag out on this trip, I could take advantage of or just have these for future knowledge. And then we would try and once again, figure out those smaller areas on this trip that were maybe behind private fields that could be you know, easily accessible, hard, difficult to access access it didn't really make much of a difference from that standpoint to us because there really wasn't a ton of hunting pressure so a lot of these areas regardless of how hard or how easy it was going to be to get back into some of these spots if it didn't seem like it was getting much hunting pressure that was kind of the key thing to us so 
in terms of you know kind of what those hottest uh, food sources would be, I guess. You know, I mentioned acorns earlier because the bur oaks are starting to drop, but it also seemed like this very rare food source in that area, at least, uh, that was alfalfa and maybe, you know, kind of a mixture where it wasn't all alfalfa, but maybe some other greens mixed into that alfalfa seemed to be the hottest thing that the deer were using at that time. And so it seemed like whether it was because it was alfalfa and the deer really, you know, were keying into that food source and it was a really good time of year for them to be able to, to eat that, or if it was just from the standpoint that there wasn't much of those types of fields around at all, a lot of those fields were canola, sunflowers, wheat, uh, that didn't have a lot of fresh deer activity that we could tell. That could have been it too. It could have just been the standpoint that, you know, basically those those alfalfa fields were very, very few and far between, and that was why they were getting hit. It also could have just been the standpoint that, you know, they're obviously very uh, desirable for the deer at that time. So, tough to tell what was the case there, but definitely, you know, the, sh the field that Shane shot his deer at was that type of field, and the area where I ended up shooting my deer at was very close to one of those types of fields. So, going back, in you know, future years, that's definitely something that we're going to key on again in that same time frame is to look for those fields that are alfalfa and hopefully they're few and far between and that is a good thing that we can key in on from the road. Even if we don't see deer out in those fields, it's a good one to go in and check for boots on the ground and try and find that fresh sign. So a lot of the speed scouting that we ended up doing was, you know, at least from my perspective, walking key areas along transition lines because there's a lot of little pockets of public land here and there and a lot of it really wasn't that great. I was expecting higher deer densities. I was expecting more deer sign than we ended up finding a lot of these places. And so for me, walking through some of these places, I'm trying to cover as much ground as possible. And for the most part, it seemed like I was just, you know, marking off place after place after place. And even that day one video you can see I, I go miles on that trip of basically the my pack on my back and my bow ready to go and just not finding a spot to set up because there's stuff that looks good on a map for sure but there's also there was not really like the hot sign that needed to go along with it and eventually I finally got to the point where I was like okay well this is there's some deer sign in this spot and you know I just sat up and hunted and didn't really have high confidence and didn't end up seeing any deer there anyway and just gave up on that spot going forward um, so if I think the deer numbers were higher like maybe similar to what we saw you know when we went to southeast Minnesota last year then I think a lot, we would have seen more deer in general maybe seen more deer in fields and it wouldn't maybe have mattered where exactly we went if it, if it looked good on the map there could have been some deer there um, but that didn't seem to be the case there was definitely spots that looked good on the map that weren't good in you know reality so then one thing that we wanted to do after the entire hunt was over was do some more scouting and this worked out pretty well because of the fact that we both tagged out early Shane had some spots in mind that he had on his map that he wanted to check out the entire time that we wanted to hit up and and it was pretty deep back in there. It's kind of some swampy area. We didn't end up getting a chance to look at that really too in depth. 
but the area that I shot my deer in, if you guys you know, see in the video, we talked about there being a particular spot on the map that we wanted to get to. And that spot on the map looked like a really great convergence. And it was essentially a really tight corridor between a swamp edge that could be a good bedding location, one of those old cattle ponds and, you know, private fields. So we went back there the next day and did some more scouting. We went past the spot where I killed my deer and just kept on going and found a couple other good, you know, staging type areas, very similar to the one that we found uh, without the hot sign, but still good sign. That probably means it gets hot at some time. And we found some more elk sign, you know, big uh, beds that were probably too big to be whitetail beds, rubs that were a little bit too high to be whitetail rubs. And then we got back to this area and literally the exact spot that we had picked on the map that we wanted to set up in based on that wind, there was a tree stand up in that tree. And it, you know, looked like it was probably, you know, within a few years old. For all we know, the guy could have been hunting there that weekend. Um, it's tough to say, it could have been the private land guy that was, you know, walking in basically, you know, through his property to get to that, that spot on the public. But there was sign there for sure. There was a couple big tracks, um, pretty beat down trails. I don't know if I would say it was as hot and heavy as the spot that we ended up killing my deer out of, but it seemed like it was still a decent spot. And we dove back into the swamp edge, you know, past where that guy had a stand and then did some more scouting there and kind of saw where, you know, it seemed like a lot of that convergence, you know, kind of came out of. And then that seemed like a little bit better area for us to mark. Uh, whereas we weren't going to be, you know, super close to where that guy had his stand. We were going to kind of be in the, in the shadows, so to speak, where those deer were going to um, meet up and, and kind of stage before heading out to that more, you know, open source that he was at with his stand. And I would imagine that early season, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference, especially if they haven't been pressured. But any other time during the year, or if they see any kind of pressure at all, I would think that those bigger bucks would, you know, kind of hold back closer to the bedding a little bit longer. So we definitely marked some tree stand locations back closer to that swamp. Um, and then that kind of gave us a key too for doing a little bit more looking around on the maps to be able to say, okay, we had this idea going in about all these spots that were going to be good spots, whether it was a drainage that had a little finger that stuck up into a field, or if it was, you know, a tight little line of timber between two bigger pieces of timber, you know, kind of your classic type funnel in that type of an area, like a tree row type funnel. Um, and then we ended up, you know, shooting both of our deer in these very specific type of areas. So then we went back into the maps and started to mark more waypoints that were more similar to what we ended up killing our deer at. And so what that probably means is that either sometime later this fall or sometime this winter, probably not this winter, uh, it'll either be later this fall, but more likely it'll be early next spring after the snow melts. I'll go back there and, and try and take another scouting trip and we'll be able to see what it looks like with the leaves down and just really get a great picture for some of those additional areas that had very similar things to what we found to be successful on this trip. So basically just upping our, our number of good potential spots, uh, which I think will be really helpful for, you know, not having to necessarily go into that same area totally blind and figure it out on the fly, but maybe have a lot better idea for having exact setups ready to go 
and then just being able to be more efficient once we're there, pick out one of those spots based on the wind direction, go in there, and then just, again, look for the hot sign uh, to kind of confirm that it's a good spot to be able to do those setups. And I think that would make us potentially even more successful next year. Not that we didn't have success this year, but it's always nice when you have boots on the ground scouting to be able to combine with that map scouting and then combine with the in-season scouting to see that hot sign is kind of a trifecta for for knowing you're on a, a good spot to give you a lot of confidence. So that's kind of the plan for next year. That's kind of the lessons learned. I think, like I said, we're going to go back to that same area next year, most likely um, do another hunt. And, you know, it was really nice from the standpoint that doing that hunt allowed us to be able to get in a great trip, great experience, and it really didn't conflict with any of our other, you know, deer or elk hunting seasons because of when it is during the year, that early September time frame. So I think it's probably something we're just going to keep doing year after year. And we are getting really close to where we're going to start getting on uh, kind of some dirt roads here in Colorado. So it's about, about to get pretty bumpy. So I'll probably end this podcast a little short, uh, but hopefully that gives you guys a really good idea for kind of what we would do differently, what we learned, and what we plan to do next year in that North Dakota style of hunt. As always, be sure to check out the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, all of our social media outlets. Give us a review on iTunes. You can go ahead and check out the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel as well, where most likely based on some of the pictures I've been seeing floating around on Instagram, there's going to be maybe some some kill footage from another deer um, that, from Parker, potentially. So make sure to check that out as well. And of course, like I mentioned, if you guys want to check out the video from my hunt and from Shane's hunt, you can find those both on YouTube on our respective channels. If you're interested in looking at a new bow, uh, the bow that I used on this hunt was the same BX32 from New Breed Archery that I you know, basically did a couple videos on this spring and uh, this summer. And one person commented to me asking how much poundage I was shooting on that bow because uh, it looked like in the video I was able to draw that bow back pretty easily and then also let that bow down uh, pretty easily in the stand without you know kind of having the bow take off on me and you know I commented back that it was a 70 pound bow and, and one of the reasons that it is so easy to you know pull back and then you know basically let that draw back down is because of the cam design and the fact that it's a softer shooting style of cam versus a very aggressive speedbow style of cam that's going to start pulling as, you know, as soon as you back off that wall. So that's one of the advantages and disadvantages of that style of cam. It's not going to be a speed, a speed demon, so you're not going to have as high of momentum or as high of you know, speed with the same arrow weight that you would with a more aggressive cam style. But from the same token, when you're actually in the woods, it's going to be a lot more user friendly uh, because it's not going to try and pull away from you off the back wall. It's going to be real nice and easy and smooth to be able to get back to full draw. If you do need to let off, it's real easy to do that as well. So if you go to newbreed or store.newbreedarchery.com, you can basically build a bow from scratch. Pick one of their models, pick what colors you want for the dip on both the riser and the limbs, what color strings you want, and then you're able to get that shipped right to your door. If you use the code DIY Sportsman, then you are able to get $50 off one of those bows. So, with that, thanks for listening.